We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, well, let's go to our text for this morning. Turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In this chapter, Paul identifies two offices of leadership in the household of God. And this morning, we're going to look at the first of those two offices, the first leadership role in the church, which is the office of overseer. So look with me at our verses for this morning, and we'll, we'll consider what Paul has to say about this crucially important topic of church leadership. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. The way that that Paul begins this part of the letter is something that deserves our attention. We we should carefully note this. Remember, Remember the context here. Remember what Pastor Patrick preached about last week. Paul has just instructed the women in the church of, that, that was at Ephesus, the, the women were instructed that it is good for them to embrace their womanhood. It, it, it's a good thing for them to receive their feminine role in the church as a good gift from God. And from, from that point, Paul is now turning his attention to a different role, which he He launches into this by stating, the saying is trustworthy. What Paul is is basically communicating when he sets things up this way, is he's saying, the word that I'm about to give you, this word that that I'm going to share, it's a faithful word. It's a good word. You You can trust it. This is something that Paul does more than once in his letters to Timothy. For instance, this this is something that came, back, came up back in chapter 1, where Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
So for Paul, the, the fact that Christ had saved him, even though he was the chief of sinners, that is something that deserved a heightened emphasis. It's something that, that he wanted to drive home in a particular way. And he begins chapter 3 with this same phrase to show that, that what he's going to say next deserves special heightened emphasis. Let's look at what that is. This is the trustworthy saying that Paul is emphasizing. Verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now this word overseer, it refers to the work of looking carefully after something. It, it's a word that, that denotes paying close attention to something. The idea that it conveys is that of a watchful presence. One scholar says that this word stresses active and responsible care for something precious or something significant. So you can, you can see why this is the right word to describe this office in the church. A church leader is someone who keeps watch. A church leader pays strict attention to those who have been entrusted into his care. This is why another word that the Bible uses to refer to this office is the word pastor. Because what is a pastor? A pastor is a shepherd. And the role of a shepherd, the responsibility of a shepherd is to keep watch over his flock. He, he takes care of the sheep. He tends to their needs. He guards them from harm. This is what an overseer is responsible to do. This is his noble work. And the nobility of this work, the excellence of this work, is owing to the fact that this is a work that is specifically given by God. Some years before this letter of 1 Timothy was written, Paul was standing on a beach in Miletus, and he was there with a group of elders from Ephesus. Acts chapter 20 records him saying to these elders, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock of God among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So just notice who it is that calls a man to the office of overseer. It is never up to a man to simply decide on his own that he's going to become a pastor. No, it takes God, the Holy Spirit, placing the call, placing the burden of pastoral ministry upon a man's heart. I believe this is why Paul says, in verse 1, that the office of overseer is something that a man should desire. Something a man should desire. That's a, that's a key part of this calling. In 1 Peter chapter 5, pastors are told to serve not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have them serve. So there should be a, a godly aspiration, a genuine desire, a sincere motivation. These are things that should accompany the call to church leadership. Notice something else about this verse. Notice that in verse 1, Paul assumes that the office of overseer will be exercised in plurality. He begins the statement 
by saying, if anyone aspires, if anyone aspires. I, I think the implication of the word anyone is that, is that church leadership will not be limited to only one man. Now, the office of overseer should be available to a plurality of men. Now, as we'll see here in a moment, it's not available to just any man who, who might have a, a, an, an, an inkling that this is what he wants to do, but it, it should be exercised by a plurality of those who are genuinely called to this noble task. This is why at Emmaus we have more than one pastor. Proverbs 11.14 reminds us that in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So when it comes to this noble task, your pastors recognize something. We, we recognize that all of us together is better than any of us alone. This is why different men stand up in this pulpit each week to preach to you and to pray with you. This is why different pastors do the work of caring for your soul. This is why, this is why the pastors of this church collaborate to lead the work of our mission. There's not just one man responsible. There's not just one man making decisions. No, we exercise a plurality of leadership here at Emmaus because we believe this is what is taught in Scripture, including here in the book of 1 Timothy, where Paul assumes that more than one man will aspire to this noble task. But that begs a question. Who are these men? Who are they? For Paul, I think that's really the question uh, that, that he wants to answer in these verses. Because remember the bigger context of this letter. The church at Ephesus had been infiltrated by false teachers. And this had brought about a, a, a crisis of leadership in that congregation. So the, the thing that's weighing on Paul's mind as he writes these words is what kind of men can be appointed to lead at this crucial hour, and, and how can Timothy cut through the clutter and the confusion of this difficult situation in order to identify such men? And so in light of these concerns, what Paul does is he puts together a list of public observable traits to communicate to Timothy that the noble task of pastoring requires a qualified man. That's the main point of, of the sermon today, because I think it's the main point of our passage, that, that a, the noble task of pastoring requires a qualified man. Paul is basically saying that if there is any man who desires to lead the church, measure that man's life against these things. Because it's not enough for a man to merely desire this office. The desire is good, but remember, this is a noble task. So, so it calls not just for a man who is willing, but it, call, it calls for a man who is noble. It demands a, a person of faithful Christian character. You've probably heard it said that character is who you are when no one's watching. And I think there's some truth to that, right? You've, you've probably been driving down the road and seen that on a church sign somewhere. Because there's truth to it, right? What you do when, when no one's around, that says a lot about your character. But that's not the whole picture. Because just, just look at the, the first qualification 
in verse 2. The first thing that Paul says is that an overseer must be above reproach. So we see from the very start here that, that character isn't just about who you are when no one's looking. It is about that. But it's also about who you are in the eyes of other people. What are you known for? What's your reputation? The way that, that those in your life answer this question says a lot about your character. I mean, listen, when a man is appointed to the office of overseer, the last thing you want to happen is for people to go, really that guy? Based on what I know about him, I mean, it's really surprising to me. Now, instead, you want people to go, that guy, okay. Yeah, based on what I know about him, that makes sense. So you might think of qualification for, for this office as being the difference between that guy or that guy. You know. <laughs> for this reason, it's probably helpful to look at being above reproach as the qualification that precedes all the rest of them. According to Alexander Strock in his book, Biblical Eldership, this first qualification stands at the head of the list as the general, overarching, all-embracing qualification. And I think that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense because, for one thing, every Christian is called to live this way. Being above reproach, pe being people who are known for integrity, for having godly character, this is the standard for the entire church. This is why Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that, that every member of the church should seek to walk properly before outsiders. 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that should be the objective for every last one of us. If we are in Christ, we should desire to be above reproach. We should seek to be above reproach. And if that's true for the church as a whole, then it should most certainly be true of the church's leaders. You see, being above reproach is not unique to the office of overseer, but it is absolutely essential to it. Because once again, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul tells us that pastors are to set an example for the flock. So any man who aspires to this noble task must be able to demonstrate for others what it looks like to be above reproach. And the first area where this should be the case is in his marriage. Paul says that an overseer must be the husband of one wife, or, or more literally, Paul says, he should be a one-woman man. Now, this isn't merely a statement about a man's marital status. Paul's not saying that, that just any man who is married to one woman is automatically qualified to be an overseer. And he's also not saying that any man who is single is automatically disqualified. To conclude, either of those things would be, would be to royally miss the point, which is that a man should be romantically and sexually above reproach. Paul says this because this was, this was one of the major problems with the false teachers in Ephesus. Not only was their doctrine warped, but so were their moral standards. They were promiscuous. They liked to, you know, sleep around. 
And Paul says that an overseer should stand in sharp contrast to that. He should be a faithful, devoted husband to one wife if he's married. And if he's not married, then his life should be marked by sexual purity. This means that overseers do not conduct secret affairs. Behind closed doors, overseers are not addicted to pornography. Overseers do not have inappropriate, flirty relationships with men, or with women or men, who, yeah, with women or men, anybody who's not his wife. <laughs> All of it's covered, yeah. Friends, too long is the list of men who have embroiled the church in scandal. Too long is the list of men who have dragged the glorious name of Jesus Christ through the mud, all because they did not live as the husband of one wife. This has to do with the very purpose of marriage. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that the reason that marriage exists is to show the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. When it comes to his bride, Jesus is a faithful, devoted husband. He lays down his life for us. He washes us, his bride, in the pure water of his word in order that he may present us holy and blameless and spotless. So if a man is flagrantly unfaithful to his spouse, or if he has a, if he has a habit of being unfaithful in more subtle ways, then this, then this shows that he is not right for the office of overseer. Because think about it. How can a man faithfully lead the bride of Christ if he's not going to be faithful to his own bride? He's not going to love the wife of his youth. So for this reason, the office of overseer requires a one-woman man. Look at the next three qualifications that that Paul mentions. He says that an overseer must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Commentators will point out that these three traits are probably related to one another, that they, they complement each other. Because really, what we see in all three of these traits is that an overseer should have mastery over himself. He should be a self-mastered man. Proverbs 16.32 says that a man who can rule his own spirit is actually greater than a man who can conquer an entire city. This just goes to show that being sober-minded, being self-controlled and respectable, these things don't just happen. No one just drifts naturally into self-mastery. No, this requires discipline. It, it requires intentional, concentrated effort. Most of all, it requires dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is not just love and joy and peace and so forth. The fruit of the Spirit is also self-control. And Paul specifically mentions this because, well, this was a problem in Ephesus as well. You had the false teachers getting drunk and, and sleeping around and carrying on. Just all kinds of, of lewd, compulsive behavior. And Paul looks at that and he says, Timothy, the church needs men who are going to be disciplined. It needs men who are going to be sober-minded, clear-headed, self-controlled, and respectable in their conduct. 
The church also needs men who are hospitable. That's the next thing Paul says, is that an overseer should be able to show hospitality. Now, when the subject of of hospitality comes up, our minds tend to drift in one of two directions. You either think of like a, a beautiful spread of food that's laid out in just an aesthetically stunning room. It's like you have to be Joanna Gaines to be hospitable. Or maybe your mind drifts to a hospital, right? Because th- there's obviously a connection point there, hospital, hospitality. But the, the way that the Bible talks about hospitality, the word that it uses doesn't refer to either of those things. It, it literally means love for strangers. So hospitality does not require a medical degree. It doesn't require an eye for aesthetics. All hospitality requires is Christian love. This is why in Romans 12, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. Don't just wait for people to come to you and then show hospitality. No, seek to show it, pursue it. This is something that all Christians should do because isn't this what has been done for us in the gospel, right? We were far from God. We were alienated from God. But in Christ, he sought us out. He opened wide the doors of his kingdom and he has gladly invited us, strangers, to come to his table. So all Christians are called to show hospitality to others because it is an expression of the gospel by which we have been saved. But for an overseer, Paul says that this is specifically important. There's actually one Christian writing from the second century that describes an overseer as a man who gladly and at all times welcomes into his house the servants of the Lord. Friends, an open home is a good indicator of an open heart. And that's what you want in your pastors, isn't it? An open heart. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, We find Paul being so open-hearted toward the church that he says this. He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's the attitude of a hospitable pastor. He he has a relational openness. He has a, a warm availability about him, and these things are demonstrated in how a pastor will welcome other people into his life. Along with being hospitable, an overseer should be able to teach. That's the next qualification. Now, in my view, this particular qualification stands at the very heart of pastoral ministry because it's central to what a pastor does. A a pastor, one of his primary responsibilities will be to preach and teach the word. According to Alexander Strock, the ability to teach entails three basic elements. It entails a knowledge of scripture. It entails the readiness to teach. And it entails an ability to communicate. Now, what this doesn't mean is that a pastor needs to be able to preach like John Piper in order to be qualified. Right? You're like, yeah, I know. We're listening to you today. But what this does mean is that there needs to be at least a basic competency 
when it comes to rightly handling the word of truth. Let me quote Alexander Strzok to you once again. He says, an elder must be able to open his Bible and exhort and encourage others from it. He must also be able to discern false doctrine and refute it with scripture. God's word brings forth growth in the church. Therefore, elders must be able to teach the word of God. This is why Paul says in the book of Titus that an overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and so that he'll be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. So what this means here at Emmaus is that in your pastors, you should be able to see a track record of faithful instruction. Sure, there may, there may be times when you disagree with our conclusions about certain parts of the Bible. That's inevitable. There may be even times when we misinterpret in our preaching and teaching, that, that we misinterpret the text in some way or, or make an exegetical mistake. That's, that's going to happen at some point. None of us has a perfect knowledge of the Bible. But what this does mean is that at the end of the day, you should have a confidence that our labors will serve to make sure that this church is what God desires for it to be, which is a pillar and a foundation for the truth that is in Jesus Christ, which is why the ability to teach is essential. Now, from this point, there's sort of a pivot here. Paul in verse 3, goes on to describe what an overseer should not be. Right? So far, he's given us positive, desirable traits that, that serve to qualify a man for this office. And now in verse 3, he's going to give us some items that could disqualify a man. Let's look at the first one. Paul says that a pastor should not be a drunkard. We saw earlier why this was important. Right? A drunken pastor is by definition not going to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Next, Paul says that an overseer should not be violent. So if a man aspires to this noble task, he should not be a brawler. He shouldn't be a man who, who throws things at home and, and who punches holes in the wall. No, an overseer needs to be constantly remembering and rehearsing to himself that he is a servant of Christ who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Likewise, your pastors should be known for their gentleness. Along these same lines, Paul says that a pastor should not be quarrelsome. Now, we need to understand that there's a difference between a quarrelsome pastor and a pastor who is diligent to confront false teachers. Those aren't the same thing. We know from the context of 1 Timothy that confronting false teaching is something that a pastor should do. It's one of his responsibilities. So, so that's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is described well by a Scottish Presbyterian minister by the name of David Dixon, who back in the 19th century had this to say to his fellow ministers. He told them, a carping, censorious spirit is to be watched and prayed against in all of us, since it is often the companion of backsliding in both doctrine and life. 
An uneasy conscience likes to find fault with others. Having many characters and tempers to deal with, we need as elders to be men of meek and quiet spirit. Not going from one extreme to another. Men of practical wisdom and sanctified common sense and therefore able to judge matters calmly and not as partisans. Friends, petty arguments are beneath the office of overseer. A man who wishes to be a pastor must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to everyone. He must be able to teach so that he might correct his opponents, not by being quarrelsome, but with all gentleness. That's what Paul tells us. Lastly, Paul says in verse 3 that an overseer must be free from the love of money, which later on he'll say that this, the love of money, is the root of all evil. Emmaus, you should be able to say that your pastors are not greedy. You should be able to say that we don't have an inappropriate fixation upon money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot serve both God and money because you will end up loving the one and hating the other. Those are words that that pastors should live by. So with all this in verse 3, what Paul is saying is that an overseer should not be a man of vice. He should not be a man of vice. Just like Paul showed us in verse 2, that this noble task requires a man of faithful character, it is also true that the office of overseer should be denied to a man who is enslaved to his sin. And in these next few verses, we'll actually see why this is so important. Starting in verse 4, Paul's going to name three more qualifications. And along with these qualifications, he's going to describe the kind of problems that come up when an overseer cannot be depended on to be a man of faithful character. The first thing Paul mentions in verse 4 is that an overseer should manage his own household well. He should manage his own household well. And the reason given for this is that a man who cannot look well after his own household is not going to be able to look after God's household. Here Paul is using what's what's called a lesser to greater argument. He's saying that if a man can't fulfill this more basic responsibility of managing his own home, then he cannot fulfill the more complicated, stressful responsibility of managing an entire congregation or of caring for an entire church. And notice that for Paul, this this becomes specifically evident in an overseer's relationship to his children. A pastor who has kids should be the kind of father who can keep his children submissive. Now, any man can keep a child submissive by being a bully. Right? I don't know if you guys know this or not, but dads are usually bigger and stronger than their kids. You probably do know that. That's a joke. I know you know that. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the the kind of submissiveness that Paul has in mind. Instead, an overseer should be able to manage his home, Paul says, with all dignity. Those two words, all dignity, those are important words. 
Because they show that an overseer keeps his children submissive, not by being a tyrant who screams and thrashes and rules with an iron fist, but he keeps his children submissive instead by being a godly husband, a godly father, a good, decent family man. Now, let me, let me sketch out a few things concerning what I don't mean by this. This, this verse could be easily twisted. I don't think this means that a, a, a pastor's family will never have problems. At least I hope that's not what it means. A congregation should never put an expectation upon a pastor and his family to be perfect and well put together all the time. No child behaves perfectly at every point in the day. And every father has parenting moments that he wishes he could take back. This also doesn't mean that a pastor has to parent his children the same way that you would parent yours. What this does mean, I believe, is that a pastor relates to his family in such a way that his children are responsive to his leadership. At home, an overseer should be the kind of man that his children, that his family can respect and admire. He should be the kind of man who, who what he says when he speaks up and when he communicates to his children, what he's saying carries weight with them. I think that's what verse 5 is saying. Look at verse 6. Paul says an overseer should not be a recent convert. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a new convert. That's not a, a, a somehow morally deficient thing. Everyone has to start somewhere in the Christian life. So what Paul is saying here, what he means by this, is that an overseer must be a man of Christian maturity. This is why another word that the Bible uses to refer to overseers is the word elder. Because the word elder carries with it a sense that a man has the, the experience and the maturity that are needed for this noble task. Just look at what's at stake when this is missing, when this maturity and this experience are absent. Verse 6 says that if an immature Christian becomes an elder, he could become puffed up with conceit. And he would end up falling into the condemnation of the devil. Let me quote Alexander Strzok one more time. He says, an elder must be mature. He must know his own heart. A new Christian does not know his own heart, nor does he understand the craftiness of the enemy. This makes him more vulnerable to pride, which is the most subtle of temptations and the most destructive of all sins. Pride caused the devil's ruin. And like the devil, a prideful elder will inevitably fall. This is what biblical history shows. That pride has destroyed even the greatest of men. So you can see there's a very real spiritual danger in what we're talking about here. A new Christian, or I would even say more generally, an immature Christian is not qualified for the office of overseer because appointing an untested, immature believer to this office could prove fatal. But that's not the only danger that Paul mentions in these verses. 
Look at verse 7. Paul says that an overseer must be well thought of by outsiders. So you can see there, if, if you're paying close attention, you can see that, that Paul kind of ends this list of qualifications in the same place he began it in verse 2. He reiterates here that, a, that, that an overseer should be known for being above reproach. He should have a good reputation among those outside of the church. But unlike in verse 2, Paul does something different here in verse 7. He says that there's a specific reason for this. A pastor should be well thought of by outsiders in order that he will not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. Friends, with these last two verses in our passage, we're being reminded that this noble task is also actually a dangerous task. There are very real threats involved here because, listen, if the enemy can ensnare the leaders of the church, then he can inflict significant damage upon the mission of God. Philip Ryken says this in his commentary on 1 Timothy. Listen to these sobering words. He says, the warnings in verses 6 and 7 lead us to an obvious conclusion. That Satan is out to get the elders of the church. This is basic military strategy. Truly, it is the oldest trick in the book. Satan has been using it since the days of Adam. The best way to defeat an army is to attack its command and control. What better way to harm the church of Jesus Christ than to overthrow the elders who are appointed to lead it? As I was sort of pondering those words that, that Philip Ryken wrote, it made me think of a book that sits on the shelf in my office. It's a book that came out several years ago called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. Maybe you've read that book. Maybe you haven't. It's basically about the occupational hazards of pastoral ministry. And I keep that book on the shelf, not because I plan to reread it someday. It's not there because it's, it's my favorite book or even one of my favorite books. Instead, I keep that book on my shelf to serve as a sort of cautionary tale. Because when you open that book to the very first page, you see a list of endorsements by famous, well-known pastors who are all telling you, you've got to read this book, it'll change your life. But here's the thing I noticed about those endorsements, and this is why it's so cautionary for me. I noticed that every last one of those pastors who so enthusiastically endorsed this book have disqualified themselves from ministry. You go down that list of names, and it's like that guy committed adultery, that guy was exposed for domineering church leadership. And that guy, well, he's an apostate now. He has denied the faith and walked away. It's just tragic. It's so tragic. Every name on that page perfectly illustrates the very point of the book. That this, this ministry, that this office, it really is a dangerous calling. And that's largely because there's a very real enemy who is prowling. He's seeking to devour. And that enemy would love nothing more than to see the elders of the church come into disgrace. And so as I reach the point 
in today's message where I'm going to exhort you to apply this passage of Scripture. I want to begin by asking you to do something for us as your elders. I'll actually mention three points of application for this moment in the life of our church. But I want to start here with this application before I say anything else. I want to begin by asking you to pray regularly for your elders. Pray regularly for us, please. Just as we pray for you, will you pray for us? Because listen, we need wisdom and power and help from above. I'll just go ahead and say to you, in and of myself, I don't have what it takes to do this job. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. Frankly, most of the time, I recognize that I'm the weakest guy in the room. And so I ask you to pray for us knowing that there, if there is any advancement to be made in the life of our church, if, if Emmaus has any future, it will not be because the elders of the church are particularly gifted or special. It will be because Christ was gracious to answer the prayers of his people. Speaking of the future of Emmaus, here's, here's the next application for this moment in the life of our church. As your elders, we will continue to put before you qualified men for the office of overseer. Let me, let me just say two things about this. First, I want to announce to you that at our next members meeting, on March 19th, we will present new elder candidates to you. These are men that we have spent time with. These are men that we have gotten to know very well. And because of that, we believe that they are called and qualified for this office. Which is why we're ready to ask you, the covenant members of our church, to examine these men. And when the time comes, we pray that you will joyfully and willingly affirm them. We'll give more information on March 19th, but I want that to be on your radar for the time being. The second thing I want to say is, maybe you've been listening this morning. And you know that God might be calling you to pursue eldership at Emmaus. You, you find yourself desiring this noble task. And hearing this passage today was actually sort of the, the nudge that you needed. If that's the case for you, come talk to us. Talk to an elder. Begin a conversation. That conversation is not a guarantee that you'll become an elder. That's not a firm commitment of any kind. But it could be a first step for you. It's a start in taking that step of obedience that you need to take in order to follow God's call on your life. Here at Emmaus, this is something we want to earnestly invite. We want men to aspire to this office because we know and believe that this is one of the essential ways that Jesus cares for his sheep. That's really the, the last point of application. I want to remind you, Emmaus, that above all else, you are cared for by the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Above everything else, Jesus is your pastor. He's a faithful pastor. This group of people, this, this congregation, we are his flock. And yet you're not just a face lost in the crowd. No, you as an individual, you are a lamb of Christ. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 says this. This is so comforting. Isaiah writes that he will, that, that, that Christ will tend his flock 
like a shepherd. He will gather each of his lambs into his arms and he will carry us in his bosom. So now that we have been gathered to the very heart of Christ, we lack for nothing. As he carries us along, his rod and his staff are comforting us on paths of righteousness. His goodness and mercy are trailing your every step, Christian, and you will dwell in his house forever. And so I want to remind you of this as we come to the communion table this morning, that it is our chief shepherd who has provided this meal to nourish us today. He tends to us at this table. He shepherds our hearts through this bread and this cup as we see in them his broken body and his shed blood. And as we receive these elements, we are remembering the very truth of what we believe. So as you prepare your heart to come, I want to remind you of that truth. I want you to receive comfort from these words of Jesus from John chapter 10. Jesus tells you, Christian, I am your good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus tells you, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me. No one coerces me to do this. I do it willingly for you. This table is exclusively for those who are known by Christ. So if you don't belong to Christ, you're not a Christian, if you've never believed the gospel, we ask you not to come to this table. Instead, we plead with you to call upon your good shepherd in faith. Entrust yourself into his care today, and he will become the shepherd and overseer of your soul. For those of us who will come to the table in a moment, I'll ask you to come beginning in the front of the room and moving to the back. Down this aisle, you'll walk across the front in a line, and the the elements are here for you at the table. You can take them with you back to your seat. And after we've observed communion, we'll sing together, and then we'll be dismissed. But before we come, church, would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Let's go before our good shepherd. Jesus, we thank you that that's that's how we know you. We know you as our good shepherd. Now and forever, you are the overseer of this flock. And if we're ever in doubt of that, or if we're ever wondering what kind of overseer you really are, then all we need to do is look at the cross. We can look at the cross and see that it's there that that you laid down your life for the sheep. You did this not compulsively, you did it willingly. You laid down your life, you died in our place. But praise be to God, you took up your life again. And so we come to you today knowing that you are the risen and reigning one. And we know that in all that we ask, you will respond with provision and faithful care. For both the pastors and the members of this congregation, God, make us a church where it is normal for us to pray often and earnestly for each other. We pray that you would continue to raise up qualified men to lead Emmaus. God, we ask that in all that we do, we would continue to point each other to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. 
we ask in his name, the name of our good shepherd. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.